Well, good evening, D2 class. I'm glad that we can meet together electronically instead of in person tonight because it's pretty nasty out there, cold, and my driveway super slick. So glad we could do this. So I hope you uh, are able to just sit down in your warm house and uh, snuggle up, grab your Bible and your notebook, and fill in these blanks as we go. But more than that, to be able to just study the Word together and the way that God made possible for us to do so. I'm glad for that tonight. I'll tell you, this is really awkward for me because I'm standing in my office, actually. I'm standing behind my podium like I always do, but I'm the only one in here. And so it's kind of weird to teach to the wall. And so I'm just having to imagine you sitting in your seats in the same way you're having to imagine me behind my podium. So we'll we'll get along just fine together. But I want to quickly review some things that we have already studied as we are trucking through the principles of Bible study. And first, I think it's always profitable to ask the question of why are we even doing this? The Word of God teaches us in 2 Timothy 2.15 that we are to study to show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. And so our, uh, our purpose is to learn to study. We want to be more than just readers of the Word, though that's very profitable. But to study the Word means we are purposing to gain understanding and grow in depth and knowledge of the Word, to be able to handle the sword, to be able to preach or to teach or to minister in whatever capacity that we would understand the gravity of God's truth. And it'll take the rest of our lives to study the Word of God. But the beautiful part is, is by putting some tools in our box, um, it gives us the things that we need to be able to study effectively, to be able to keep the Word of God rightly divided, and therefore um, not being ashamed before the Lord. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be ashamed before the Lord that He would have given me His Word, even preserved it in a language I can understand, and then I wouldn't spend any time ever discovering to know what it says. And so I, I don't know about you, but I want to spend my days discovering the Word of God, but doing it in the right way. And so that's the purpose of this class, is to make sure we're, we're employing the principles to keep us between the white lines so that we don't uh, drift into areas of bad doctrine or theology and things that would be a contrast to what the Scripture actually says. So though, how do we find out what the Scripture actually says? Well, we've already looked at a principle of context of trying to discover always, well, what did God actually say? Who was the intended recipient? What the, all the who, what, where, when, why, and how are the right questions to ask to discover context, not just grabbing a phrase here and a phrase there, and, in, and then contriving our own meaning for things, but instead always wanting to find out the context of things. And in, a, in a context, we're looking for even a doctrinal context as well. What does it actually teach? What is God's intended meaning to the recipients? Speaking of recipients, that was principle number two, which is the principle of peoples. That's uh, looking at the different groups in the Bible that the, the word was being communicated directly to. We know that the word was being directed to the Jew, to the Gentile, and also to the church of God. And so it's important as you study any book or passage of Scripture to know who was the intended recipient of that so that we keep the context clear. Um, we've already talked about in detail why it matters to keep this straight, that if we start applying things to ourselves and grabbing hold of even teaching and doctrine that was given to, say, the Jews, and here we are as the Gentile church, well, we're going we're gonna to really stray off course and, um, and build concepts of doctrine and theology that is, is actually not what God's intended meaning was at all. And so it's important we understand these three groups being taught 
are uh, recipients of the word, the Jew, the Gentile, and the church. There's also the principle of time. Now, as we learn in 2 Timothy 2, that we are to rightly divide the word of God. Dividing can be dealing with people groups, but it's also issues of time, because if we try to apply scripture of written in one particular time frame into a different time frame, well, you're going to get off course. So, for example, because the Bible is a progressive revelation from God, to then impose on a people group in the Bible things that they maybe didn't even know yet. The, that word had not been given yet. And so to try to hold them accountable or to see God functioning with those people the same way he does with us today, well, that's not realistic because they didn't have that information yet. And so we, the word we attach with that is a Bible word called dispensations, which means God dispensing his grace in different ways at different times. The manner of mechanism of God has always been a mechanism of grace in terms of salvation, but how God did that is different in different places and times. The way God functioned with Noah is different than he did with Abraham. Abraham was contrasted to the way he dealt with Moses, or with Moses as the lawgiver. Obviously, how God communicated with Moses and the nation of Israel is different than the way he does now with the church of God. And so it's important that we understand our dispensations in the principle of time to keep our Bible straight. We also last time learned about these applications of Scripture of applying the Word when we go to read and study. And what that means is um, the, the applications is what does the, the doctrine actually teach? What about the history? And what am I supposed to do with it? So just think three things, history, doctrine, application. What did it act? What happened? Ask in just real time what actually happened in this text. That's your history. What is this actually teaching when it comes to the king and his kingdom, understanding God is the king? All that we see in going on throughout history is dealing with the kingdom of God. And then, well, what am I supposed to do with that? What am I going to learn from that as someone functioning now in God's kingdom? I am a son of the king. So what do I do? How do I, how do I behave myself as someone belonging to the king? Well, that's what I'm going to learn each time I go to the Bible. Now we remember, um, that all the scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, which is the teaching. It's profitable for correction, for uh, reproof and instruction in righteousness. And so God's always teaching us something of what is right, what's wrong, how do I fix it, and then how do I keep it? And so every time we go to the Bible, we can see that distinctly. It's helpful whenever you're teaching, and I think I shared this with you last time, is to Make sure you understand where you are in your Bible historically, and then discover the doctrinal component. That will then give you your intended meaning so you can uh, apply the Scripture the correct way. There will be a general application that is true for all of mankind, um, but then there will be specific application that the Spirit of God will be teaching you, and that, that you will um, take home from that that's very important. And so, but it's very important, I believe, to come. Uh, from the standpoint of history and doctrine, so you don't just jump straight to application, or you'll always find yourself just reading your Bible for the quick devotional hit, saying, you know, well, this is what I got out of it. This is what it means to me. And that's real neat to hear hear that and to get that. However, what you got may not be what God intended you to get. And so be careful there in, in pursuing your Bible that way. Always apply your principles. Today, we're going to begin on page 30 with the principle of measured words. Number five in your notes, the principle of measured words. Because why? 
because every event, phrase, and word has a very specific purpose. When we think about the gravity of all that is included in the Bible, but then all that was not. With all of the things that have happened throughout human history, even during the times of the Bible, why would God choose to record what he did for us that this is now what we have? John talks about this in the book of John in chapter 20 and verse 30. And he said, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John defines the purpose of why he wrote his book, that being believing you may have life and that you may know, that you may believe, right? But he also is letting us know that Jesus did lots of stuff that he didn't even choose to write down. When you get to the end of chapter 21 in verse 24, and this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, well, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. John lets us know that there are plenty of things that happen in history, and especially in Jesus' day, things that he said, things that he did, but we have what God intended us to have in the, in the Bible as we have it today. And with that said, that means every word is important. Now, you know, if you've been going through your read through the Bible um, with us as a church, we've just come through some pretty tough areas of Bible reading because of the Levitical time and then Numbers, which are two tough books because of somewhat of a repetitious nature. You're seeing all this detail printed out on uh, sacrifices and offerings and all the animal parts and whether you burn it, whether you eat it, whether what do you do with it? And it seems like good grief of all things in history that have happened. Why would God choose those words and repeat even those things more than one time? Um, why would God do that? Well, this is the part of Bible study that's fascinating is, is to see, well, why did God do that? And to then begin to understand why was he teaching us that? Why are those sacrifices even important at all in knowing that and believing that? God specifically recorded what he did for us so that we can know him. And as even John says, that we might believe and have life in his name. Now, number two in your notes here, your greatest tool for Bible uh, for your um, for Bible is a study concordance because it ties the words of Scripture together. Now, words of Scripture, number two, that's what it says in the notes, words. A concordance, if you're not familiar with that, is a great tool. It, as a matter of fact, there was a man whose last name was Strong that went through the Bible. It took forever to do this, but he allocated a numeric value to every word in Scripture. And so every time that same word would appear or the same translation of that word would appear, then he would record that so you could see it. So if I want to look up the word grace, I can now, it's really cool because I can, in my concordance in my electronic things, I can look up that word grace and every word, the time, the, every time the word grace appears in the Bible, I can see it. Used to be I would pour over big, thick books that were massive, but now I can just plug this stuff in on a computer and, or in the palm of my hand and see it instantly. An incredible tool. But what does that allow me to do? It allows me to take the words of Scripture and begin to see the synergy of what God is teaching 
And how did he teach it in this dispensation? And how does it taught in this dispensation? And I can now begin to put the pieces of this together and gain a thorough understanding. Because what I'm really desiring to know is what is the whole counsel of the Word of God on a particular matter? So number three, this is a serious problem with the flood of Bible translations. Precise words are often sacrificed for the flow of thoughts and readability. We've discussed this somewhat before, that different Bibles have different intended purposes. And I don't, I don't pick on Bible translations necessarily, but it's, it is helpful to understand their purpose. Some Bible translations, their intention is to obtain the best level of readability, which usually will create a phrase-for-phrase or thought-for-thought process. They're often called transliterations, and where the the goal is not um, accuracy of a word-for-word translation from Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic into uh, the English language, ultimately, or other languages, but instead, the, the purpose is to gain the sense of the meaning and put that into a word package that the modern-day reader can understand. Well, we appreciate that oftentimes in a devotional sense, but when it comes to study purposes, whew, boy, it really gets difficult because it's, it's inconsistent. The paraphrasing is not always the same. A lot of times the individual words will be lost in the process. So number four in your notes, every jot and tittle is to be preserved according to Christ in Matthew 5, verse 18. And I showed you this a couple of weeks ago, so I'm not going to drill down on this for more than a second here. But in Matthew 5, 18, Jesus said this, For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Well, what's a jot and a tittle? What is he describing? Well, if you look in your in your Bible in Psalm 119, I gave this example a couple of weeks ago, so you can see what a jot or jod appears, look, especially look above Psalm 119, verse 73. You'll see the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet, the Hebrew yod. But then a tittle is even the slightest difference, because in verse uh, 25, you can see the difference between the daleth and the resh, in, in verse Psalm 119, 25 from Psalm 119, verse 153. So you can see all this in your notes. Look at it in your Bible real quick. But just seeing how this is even printed, it's the small, slightest stroke mark that makes the difference. Now, this didn't really have as significant of meaning to me until I moved to China, where the, uh, the language is, is in a character form and not in a uh, letter form, like our language, of course. And so I was blown away sometimes by the slightest stroke. I mean, even the angle pitch of a, of a letter or of a stroke mark changes the entire word. Well, it gave me a real perspective on what jots and tittles are about and the gravity of what Jesus is describing, that down to the smallest minute thing is not passing away. So why did Jesus say that? Because every piece matters. Every word matters. Every phrase matters all the way down to the nth degree. It matters. And so, letter B, page 31. God chooses specific words for specific purpose. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 through 6. Give you a chance to get there. Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6 says this. Every word of God is, is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. 
So don't go adding to the Bible things that it doesn't say. We'll all be shocked and amazed to find out the Bible doesn't say that cleanliness, godly, cleanliness is next to godliness. You know, that's a neat concept, but it doesn't say that anywhere in the Bible. So we often, you know, for fun, maybe add phrases and things. But oftentimes people will attach things and even say, well, I, the Bible says it. I know it's in there somewhere. Well, it'd be real helpful to find the where because sometimes we've attached things into the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that at all. And so do not add things to the scripture. Revelation 22, verse 18, we get to the very end of the Bible, and we're given a very hefty warning here from the Lord when it comes to adding to or taking away from the word. Revelation 22, 18 says this, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. There's a quite a gravity here to uh, adding to or taking away from the word of God. In Psalm chapter 12, verse 6 and 7, Psalm 12, 6 and 7, teaches this, that the words of the Lord are pure words. We just heard that in Proverbs. Like silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. You shall keep them, O Lord. You shall preserve them from this generation forever. And so we're going to trust God for that, that God's word is exactly what he wants us to have, and he is the preserver and is more than capable of doing so. And gives us even a glimpse in 1 Samuel 3.19, that little Samuel was someone that uh, ultimately became a great prophet of the Lord. But when he was a young man, he did not let any of the words fall to the ground. That's a great verse to go look up, by the way, to see how Samuel didn't let God's words. He cherished every word of God and wouldn't want any of them to fall to the ground. So letter B, verse number one. They establish context and provide keys. The specific words provide keys for comparing Scripture with Scripture. They speak of the need to compare Scripture with Scripture. As we do, key words and phrases do appear. So. Now go to 1 Corinthians 2. This is going to be really the important component to understanding this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, <clears throat> 9 through 16. It says this, But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit of who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolish to him, that he may know, excuse me, that he can know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. The, the uniqueness we have with the word of God is we have the very mind of Christ, and now we want to learn to compare 
spiritual things with spiritual things to be able to understand. We're going to go into more detail about that in a moment. But these specific words, number two, they also provide red flag warnings in regard to context. This is what will help us find our way consistently through the word. Number three, they're used commonly in everyday language, English, coming straight from, well, King James Bible, if that's what you're using, that is a more direct translation. For example, a soft answer turns away wrath. We hear that in our common everyday language because we derive that from Proverbs 15. But if you watch, what is the rest of the verse? A soft answer turns away wrath, but grievous words stir up anger. We often leave that part off. And that's a very important part. And so every individual word matters. Letter C, the words and phrases God used in the Bible are important to help you understand the Bible. Become You need to become familiar. Now, I'm not going to go back to Appendix B and teach all these things. We'll be here forever. But I do want you to turn in the back of your book to Appendix B. Because it gives a list of common words and phrases in the Bible. And they're... And their meaning often in context, where if you want to think of it this way, they're like road signs. And God keeps giving you the little road, road signs along the way so you don't get lost. And what is he actually talking about? And so you can see how all these words, individual words, I'm in Appendix B, as in boy. And if you look at the different groupings of words and the words that then support those, well, what will happen is as I'm studying my Bible, I'm going to see these individual words as they come along, and it's going to help then set a context, usually for kingdom context. What is God teaching that I don't want to miss here? Because I'll see the history, and that will be plain. It's a story. It's, I can see what's happening and what's going on, but there's always something else going on. God is teaching something more significant here that deals with his kingdom. It may be things in, re in regards to the coming of the king when Jesus comes the first time to pay our sin debt. It may be in regards to the, the kingdom in terms of Jesus coming again and, and ruling as a king on this earth, just as a couple of examples. But those words serve as road signs. What will happen as you study your Bible more, you will discover these words become very familiar to you, and there are certain phrases that will jump out and, um, and you'll notice them instantly when it happens. And so every word, it, it, it matters. I lost my page. Where am I? Back to page 31. Hang on here. One second. I got, I flipped too many pages in my book. Now I'm all messed up. Oh, there we go. Okay. So now let's move on. We've just learned the principle of individual words. Now go to page 31 in your book. Number six, the principle of literal understanding. Literally. Always take a passage literally until it's impossible to do so. So if scripture speaks clearly or when if or if scripture clearly indicates the passage is symbolic. Sorry, I can't read. It is healthy to always take the Bible literal because that's how God intended it. We often will um, want to find hidden meanings and there that's not the point. God speaks very plain to where the common man and the common tongue can understand his word. That was God's intended purpose. And so, number one, very few passages in the Bible are symbolic. And what symbols exist are always clearly defined in the immediate context or elsewhere in the Bible. Now, this is something cool because 
Often people will say, well, I just don't read the Bible. It's too symbolic for me, or especially Revelation, get that tag a lot. I just don't understand Revelation. It's way too symbolic, and I don't get all the symbols. Well, interestingly, whenever there is a symbol in the Bible, God will then define the symbol for you so you'll know what is symbolic and what is literal. And now it may not be in the exact same passage. You may have to do your homework to go find it, but God defines the symbols so we can understand them. So number two, this does not contradict what we just learned, but simply emphasizing that we must take the Bible more literally than we imagined. We're not looking for hidden meanings, but we're going to compare Scripture with Scripture to understand the context and what is God saying. Symbolism is clearly indicated and defined in the Bible as following uh, these examples. So go to Matthew 13. This is an easy one to see how this plays out. Matthew 13 is where Jesus begins to speak in parables to the disciples. Chapter 13, Matthew, verse 1. On the same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea, and a great multitude were gathered together to him, so that he got into a boat and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. Then he spoke many things to them in parables, saying, Now here he goes. And the whole parable here, verses 3 through 9, is the parable of the seed falling onto the soil, some good soil, some bad, and all that. Well, the disciples are hearing this, and now they're trying to get a hold of what is, he, what is he talking about? Verse 10, And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered uh, and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Time out. What did he just say in verse 11? Why is he speaking in parables? He is revealing something. He is revealing the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. If I want to understand God's kingdom, God, Jesus is going to speak to me now in very simple terms that I can understand. I can get this whole idea of seed and dirt and rocks and thorns and thistles. And well, yeah, that makes total sense to me. I get that. For the person that is sitting there that is not spiritual and not gra grasping what he's saying, and he teaches this on in, in Isaiah, from the book of Isaiah. Look at verse 14. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, because they don't hear it. Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand, and seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes have uh, they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. Isaiah prophesying of this day to come, where the word of God is being proclaimed even plainly, but those listening to it, the religious leaders of the day, who had preconceived an idea of what they wanted the Messiah to look like and act like and be, is not what Jesus is doing. Jesus didn't show up like David, the mighty warrior, to conquer the Roman government so that, that Israel would be once again the dominant world power, militarily speaking and economically speaking. That wasn't Jesus' agenda. He was coming to pay the sin debt, as we all know that. Well, because they had that the blindness of their heart in perceiving themselves to be sinless, because after all, they're right in the eyes of God because of their sacrificial system and the keeping of the law, and they keep it more perfect than anyone else, in fact. And so they saw no reason to have a sin debt paid. So when Jesus comes along teaching things, they don't understand anything he's talking about. Why is this guy, why are people gathering around and listening to this guy talk about seed and dirt and, and thistles and thorns? This makes no sense. 
Well, that is very symbolic in his manner. Well, verse 18 through 23, Jesus then explains, well, what am I talking about? Because the disciples wanted to know, what do you mean by this? Well, then if you look on to verse 24, another parable he put forth uh, to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like, and here he goes. And now he explains another symbol or parable type for them to understand what is he talking about. Now, another um, way to see this is go to Revelation chapter 1. In Revelation chapter 1, John is instructed to write what he sees. Just write down what you see. But he doesn't always understand what he sees. Now, chapter 1, verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. This is what he's seen, okay? And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he said, uh, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And now he explains the symbols. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Oh, well, good, because I saw something there. I had no earthly idea what that was. Thanks for explaining. So here's what happens in the Bible. When God is speaking symbolically, he tells you what he's doing. And if it's not explained in that exact passage, it will be explained somewhere else. And so we don't have to be always trying to figure out the, well, what is the hidden meaning of what I'm actually looking at? Well, we can do our homework and discover it, and God will reveal it. Otherwise, take it literally. Understand, though, in the Bible, God uses literary terms just like any other fine piece of literature would do. God uses adjectives, and he uses metaphors, and he uses similes, and he uses hyperbole and gives exaggerations and things. And so we can look at the Bible in a literal sense and literary historical context and be right on the money. So continue on to the next page, page number 32, another key principle. It's called the principle of full mention. Full mention. Somewhere in the Bible, God declares his mind fully in regard to issues of vital importance. So what does this mean? God is now giving to us a very thorough explanation on a particular subject in a place in the Bible. Number one, this is simply to say that somewhere is a definitive statement by God that serves as the foundation to all biblical teaching on a particular subject of great importance. It doesn't mean that everything that is going to be said on that subject is in that one passage, but this passage serves as a foundational level um, grassroots truth that you've got to grasp it here, or you go back to here because this serves as your framework to see this, that subject played out. 
It could be a single verse, a chapter, or a series of chapters. Letter B. You can observe this principle in God's full mention regarding the following important issues. Now, I'm not going to read through and study each one of these with you tonight. This is a good study for you to go do. But it is helpful to see when you look at what these are, some of these you'll be just so familiar with. Uh, oh, yeah, I know in John chapter 3, that's where Jesus is meeting with Nicodemus who came to him by night. And yeah, that's where Jesus is explaining what being born again means and explains it thoroughly. Well, that's important because the term born again shows up other places in Scripture. But I can use John 3 as home base to understand what does being born again actually mean because Jesus explains it so thoroughly to Nicodemus. The same with the story or the, the teaching on the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. The entire chapter is devoted to this because the Corinthian church was worried or had was messed up in doctrine, quite frankly, um, in regards to a bodily resurrection. And when we stick someone in the ground after they've passed away, well, is that it? And so G our, uh, Paul is teaching them, no, in the same way in which Jesus resurrected, and you get to see him in his persona and his personality and who he is, but not only that, but his body resurrects from the grave, and the entire chapter is devoted to the resurrection. So obviously there's lots of places that talk about resurrection glorified bodies and and uh, all that, but 1 Corinthians 15 serves as home base. And, and I can tell you that through the years of Bible study, there are many others that are not listed here, but you will learn these home base locations and find that when a particular subject is, is proposed, you already know where home base is. Some of those are, are taught in our Discipleship 1. Matter of fact, many of them are. It's why I think it's so important to go and be discipled to gain the understanding of the foundations of, of Scripture, the foundations of our beliefs, um, because they serve. When you get those foundational key blocks put in, well, you know the home base for things. And so, uh, you know, oftentimes I enjoy doing Q&A sessions with people. And, um, and, you know, over the years, I've just had the opportunity to memorize a lot of home base subjects in the Bible, foundational home base. And so it's not that I've memorized the whole Bible. I wish I could, but I've never been able to do that. But if you memorize the home bases, oftentimes the main core subjects that are being asked um, that we struggle with in, in our Christianity, um, well, if you know the home base, you can go and impart the truth to someone very quickly and, and be able to navigate your way through the rest of the Bible, if, especially if you've done your homework and have maybe cross-referenced and put other references from other places in your Bible as you did that study to where now you've got a pretty pretty thorough uh, means to explain any particular subject at time. So letter C, let's look at an example. When you come upon a certain theme in a passage of Scripture and you're seeking to understand it more fully, see if you can discover a key passage where God fully, most fully declares his mind on the subject. Use that passage of full mention as the foundation for understanding the different pieces that you find throughout the rest of Scripture. I'll throw one more example. It's not in your notes, but for example, if somebody says, Dwayne, what do you believe about uh, the rapture of the church? Do you really think that's a thing? Well, yes, I sure do. First um, uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, I know verses 13 through 18, teaches the most thorough of that particular subject. But I also can find things about it in 1 Corinthians 15. 
I also find things about it in Revelation chapter uh, uh, 4 specifically. But here's the thing. If I want to really gain my foundational block about that, and, and what is that talking about? 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 helps me to see that the most thorough. So that's my foundational spot. Well, likewise, if you look at number three in this area, may, oh, maybe I missed two. Use that passage of full mention and the foundation for the different pieces. The word different goes in the blank in number two. Number three now, in a very practical sense, to learn about the human tongue, for example, begin in James 3 and trace your cross-references through Scripture with the help of your concordance and your cross put your cross-references in the margin of your Bible or those found in other study helps. So here's what, here's what I would suggest to you. You take the word tongue. James 3 teaches about our tongue. If you look up blueletterbible.org or whatever Bible study tool you like to use, I use Blue Letter Bible because it gives me a lot of options. At the top of the page, on if you go to blueletterbible.org, towards the top, it'll have an area where you type in a key word, a phrase, or a verse. And I type in tongue, because that's the theme of what James 3 is talking about, the tongue. Well, that's going to give you just an immensity of verses to, to look at. And through that study, just of that one word, I'm going to discover that tongue is describing languages. Tongue is describing this member in my mouth, of course. Tongue is being described as a mechanism to communicate things good or evil. But also with that, I'm going to learn some disciplines. I'm going to learn some warnings. I'm going to learn about how to keep it and how to walk in it. In other words, the very things about all Scripture being given for what purposes? For doctrine, for teaching, for correction. You know, I learned some things every time I study the word tongue, which will lead to your mouth, which leads to words, which will also lead you on a study to examine your heart, because that's where all these things flow out of. And I learn about the correction side of uh, not speaking certain things or choosing not to speak. What does it mean to hold your tongue? That's a great phrase you'll see repeated over and over. How do you do that? Am I literally taking my Bible literal? Do I grab my, my tongue with two fingers and hold it? No. What does God mean by that? We understand that. So this is what it looks like when you do a study on tongue is not only will you see the tongue in use, but also the discipline that goes with it, the struggles and the warnings and all the calamities that come from it. But it will also lead you to other words that will now apply the understanding. And what will happen is it will then temper the manner in which I use my tongue because you decide, you know what, I want to be a person of wisdom. And then I'm going to learn that, you know what, I can try to willpower my tongue and hold it by my own will, but, you know, something's going to provoke, and I'm liable to use the wrong words at the wrong time and the wrong tone. So how do I overcome that? Well, that same study will lead you to the same end, and that is, if it's coming out of the heart, well, this is the dwelling place of God. The Spirit of God lives there. So the tongue that is controlled by the Holy Spirit is speaking those things which are righteous and true and holy and meek with humility and kindness and goodness and gentleness. 
because that's the manner of God. But the tongue that is fleshly and sensual, it's devilish, it's wicked, and provoked, it will sound that. So out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We learn this in Matthew. As part of your study, you will discover that. Out of the abundance of the heart, my mouth speaks. So what's really going on inside of me, well, you'll know because that's what's going to come out of my mouth. I'm either spirit controlled, and it may be moment by moment, where in that moment I was in the flesh. Think about, um, I'll give you an example of that. Because um, oftentimes people will throw someone under the bus like permanent and say, well, you know, did you hear how he said that? Or he blew up and yelled all over everybody. And man, it's like the guy's heart dark and cold and he's a sinner, wicked and unjustified. Well, now time out. Because you know what? Peter was a man who absolutely loved the Lord. And in one moment provoked, denied the Lord, we know. In another moment provoked. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Peter loved the Lord. Peter went on to give his life serving the Lord. Moment by moment, we are operating in the Spirit, yielded to the Spirit with our tongue, or we're not. So that's the lesson that will be derived. If you take your Bible and your concordance and do the cross-references and see all the places the Bible talks about these things, you'll end up with quite a study. But where's home base? You'll find individual words or individual phrases and verses all over the place in the Bible about this. But the big frame, the foundational stone to stand on, James chapter 3, is the most thorough teaching in one text about the tongue that you can work from. That's the purpose of this principle of full mention. Um, and you will discover many others in the Bible in your time of study. Number eight. The principle of first mention. Now, once a truth is established in the Bible, God does not deviate from it. For centuries, Bible students have observed how common it is that first mention of something in the Bible establishes a truth or pattern that is consistently followed through the entire Bible. God's word is consistent because God's nature is consistent. Hebrews 13 teaches that, right? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. So number three, the books of the Bible do not appear in chronological order. When someone refers to the law of first mention, as it is often called, the idea is to see God's consistency. God's consistency in a figure, truth, or picture throughout the Bible, not necessarily from the first chronolo chronological mention in time. Another way is to state this by saying what, it, what is true is always true. Well, Number five, the majority of first mentions will be found, of course, in, your, in books like Genesis or Job. Genesis being the first in the Bible, of course, that we can see, but Job actually predates Genesis because the time frame of Job the person would actually fit in the area of about Genesis 12 through 22. But obviously, Moses was the writer of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis. And so, uh, we would see then Job is chronologically going to predate Genesis by time and age, but Genesis is going to give us a tremendous number of first mentions, but so does Job. Matthew will as being the first book of the New Testament, and then Acts comes along as the beginning of the church age and another transitional spot. So we see several first mentions there that will give us some guidance. 
So real quickly, I'll finish here tonight. There are several examples apparent from the book of Genesis alone that are good first mentions. The obvious ones, Genesis 3.1, the serpent is more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord made. And well, who's the serpent? He was the deceiver. We know him to be the devil. Revelation 12.9 calls him out. The serpent, the devil, the dragon. So we can see the word serpent connected with sin or the devil incarnate, the, de the devil person himself repeated again and again throughout scripture. So that word serpent is very important. We can see in chapter three, verse one, again, Satan's strategy of casting doubt on God's word. There's a, a pattern that's followed. Satan um, comes proposing a question. Yay, has God said? And his first thing that he proposes to Eve is, did God really say that? And by posing a question, causing her to doubt, uh, and well, did God really do that? And so the consistent pattern throughout your Bible is Satan's attacks are always the same. Did God really say that? God must be holding out on you for something. God's not wanting you to experience the best of him. God doesn't want you to be like him. And so Satan is always twisting his words. He will often just come straight out and call God a liar. And every time you see Satan operative with, when it comes to the word is to put someone on their heels questioning did God really say that? Did God really mean what he says? And does he say what he means? Chapter 2, verse 3 teaches the word sanctification. God sanctified a day. Well, what does that mean? It's a day that's set apart. It was a unique day. Well, if you take the word sanctification, then it is not this mysterious experience by which one is permanently delivered from sin, as some have taught. No. God, it means to be set apart. Set apart in our, in our idea of sanctification, New Testament would mean set apart from sin to serve God. But it's a, a sanctification process that God is working in us all the time, um, helping us grow and mature in our faith in the Lord. Genesis chapter 11, the word Babylon appears as a city that's built by men to gain a great name for themselves in rebellion against God's purpose and provision. Throughout the Bible, the name Babylon is associated, associated with God-denying world system. And that's whether you're talking the Babylonian Empire that conquered Israel and king of Babylon, which is Nebuchadnezzar, and you see that whole scene in the Old Testament, or you fast-forward the film clear to the New Testament, especially into Revelation, where the world system of religion and world God, it comes crashing down because Jesus is going to conquer it. But you see it in the mystery Babylon in Revelation 17, 5. It's a, and you see it in form of a city in Revelation chapter 18. But this is a consistent theme throughout the Bible that began in Genesis 11. Genesis 22 is one of the great examples. I think it's so easy to follow. But the word worship appears in Genesis 22 when Abraham goes up on the mountain to offer Isaac his son. And he says that I and my son will go yonder to worship. To worship. Well, what is, what's about to happen? Abraham is going to offer his only son, but he's going to offer God the very best that he has. Well, that defines worship. Worship is not just a church service. It's not just singing songs. It's not just reading my Bible, and it's not just serving people. It's all of those things, but really, what is it? 
I'm giving back to the Lord what rightfully belongs to him and get, basically saying, I'm giving all that I have for all that he is. It's why Paul would then come along in Romans chapter 12 and say this, that I, I'm beseeching you, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. That's what worship would look like, is offering the sacrifice of ourselves unto the Lord in the manner in which Abraham offered Isaac, his son, as an offering unto the Lord as well. That's what worship looks like, giving all that I have for all that he is. All right, this will conclude our study for tonight. Um, if you have questions, don't raise your hand. I can't see them. But uh, next week, we'll gather together again, either in person or electronically. We'll just see how that goes. But I hope this has been profitable for you tonight. And man, you've got plenty of homework to take care of to go back and review. The key to this class is don't just take it, fill in the blanks, set this little notebook on the shelf and say that was neat. You've got to go back and review these principles again and again to really understand and to learn to apply them well. So look forward to seeing you next time. Have a great weekend.